Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not perishable seed, but of imperishable, though the living through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And this is the, Lord, the word of the Lord. You know, Peter is writing to people who are tasting many of the difficulties of life. Let me say that again. <clears throat> Peter is writing to people who are tasting many of the difficulties of life. These people are experiencing the grace of God in a way that most of us would not define as grace. We've talked about this. The grace of refinement. Maybe not so much the grace of release or the grace of rest necessarily or the grace of avoidance of difficulties, but nevertheless the grace of refinement dealt from the Lord's hand for our good and ultimately for His glory. I don't know if you remember back at the beginning of the series, let me at least refresh our memory a little bit, we said that God is calling these people to action in the midst of their suffering. He's, he's calling them to do something in the midst of their suffering. We also said that Peter is telling us that when we are suffering or being tested, that our proclivity or uh, the likelihood of our response to such suffering is to turn our eyes inward. It's to become even more self-oriented than we are already tempted to be when life is going well. I like how Paul Tripp said it. We tend to trouble our troubles. Uh, to think of it another way, we magnify our troubles. We become focused inward, and, we, and what we do in that sense is we, we heap more trouble on top of the troubles we're already experiencing. You see, as we turn inward, these troubles are intensified. I don't know if you've read this book called Crosstalk, if you've not read it. It's a really helpful book. It's a biblical counseling book. But in there, he, he sets up this really helpful paradigm of what he calls saints, sinners, and sufferers. He used this in counseling all the time. He used this as I'm just processing how to help even my own heart and help other people. But we're all, for, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you are at any given time a combination of the following three categories. You're a saint, a sinner, and a sufferer. At any moment, you are sinning and or suffering. Now the reality is, is that when you are suffering, you can either suffer as a sinner or suffer as a saint. Meaning you can suffer in a way that resembles and, and lives out of your identity as a saint or your identity as a sinner. And so when you're suffering, the question is, is which way will you suffer? Will you suffer like one who is a blood-bought saint or as one still living in the flesh as a sinner. And this book is largely about how to suffer as saints. 
How do we suffer as one who's been bought by the blood of Jesus? That's why it's hard when you're thinking about, this is a side note, when you're thinking about helping people or helping your own heart, it's always important to recognize that there's a, there's a dynamic going on here that's, that makes it difficult, that, that in most situations, people are likely both sinning and suffering at the same time. At the very least, they're suffering because of their own sin. So that's why we say, if, if in suffering we tend to look inward, now we're heaping the sin of selfishness on top of our suffering, now compounding the reality of our suffering and making it, in a sense, even worse. But more importantly, making it unholy. At least our actions in response to it. As we think about suffering, and, and, and Peter, something I think we should also point out so far as well, is that we're not talking about a denial of suffering. We're not talking about suppressing the reality of suffering, or hiding it, or ignoring suffering. We're not talking about suppressing the harsh reality of life. Peter is not doing that. But the temptation for us in suffering is to settle for survival. The temptation and suffering is to settle for survival. Right? And then from that point, we get all of our justifications for all the things that we're not doing right, that we should be doing right, or for omitting the things that we know we should be taking care of or we should be doing that honor the Lord. Our temptation is to suffer or to settle for suffering. But Peter is calling us to live beyond survival, even in weakness. Even in brokenness, he's calling us to live beyond just surviving through the situation. Even in difficulty. I think we tend to think that the call to be holy is a burden. That's why when someone's in suffering and you come along and say, Brother, I'm concerned about your holiness. In whatever phraseology you use to, to say that, and however gentle you are to say that, it's typically received as uh, at least not welcomed. Uh, and it's received as though, why are you heaping burden upon my already burden-filled life? But Peter doesn't see holiness... The call to holiness, the expectation of holiness as a burden being heaped upon a suffering saint. You see, the call to holiness is not a burden to throw upon your shoulders during suffering, but indeed the call to holiness is the journey to remove the yoke of burden. And that's what Peter understands that I think we fail often to understand. Listen, the yoke of holiness weighs nothing compared to the yoke of sin's slavery. And when we're in the midst of suffering, it's easy to put on the yoke of sin's slavery. You see, the walk of holiness in the midst of suffering leads not to surviving, but to thriving and to flourishing. So Peter is calling us in the midst of this to stop looking inward in the midst of trials and testing and grief and to look outwards. He's calling us to look outwards in a specific way and to a specific person. We'll get to that in a minute. But he's calling us not to look inward, but to look outward 
And he calls us to holiness, to walk in a life, to walk a life that is honorable to God. And last week, Peter reminded us of three values that must reign in our hearts if we are to move towards holiness. We talked about the value of accountability, that there will be accountability for every sin and work and deed in our life. Even though we are covered by the blood of Jesus, that there is still accountability for our sin because he loves us and will discipline us for it. Yes, Jesus took the ultimate payment for that sin, the ultimate accountability for it that we who are found in his blood would be with God forever, washed clean of our sin. But God, as a loving father, will discipline us for every deed that is unholy. We talked about the value of redemption and the value of God's sovereign plan, that it is unstoppable and that it will continue and he will save his people. And how those things drive us to holiness. Well now, the first place that Peter turns his eyes to, the first place that Peter goes to, kind of as a a place of priority, if you will, to talk about what holiness looks like, like what it leads to, is love for one another. Love for brother, sister, Christians. That's where he goes. That's not saying that other aspects of holiness are important, but John, uh, I'm sorry, Peter, goes first to this. That holiness is going to fruit this way. It's going to look this way. There's a place of priority in Peter's mind of what holiness is first going to look like. John, I think, picks up on this in 13:35, chapter 13, verse 35, and the gospel says, by this, um, let me back up, Jesus picks up on this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Why? How? If you have love for one another. You've got to understand the context, right? He's talking to his disciples about being his disciples and what that will say to those who are not my disciples, okay? That's the context. So those who are my, I mean, Jesus thinking forward here, those who are my church, how they love each other as my church, are going to show the rest of the world that you are mine by doing this. Notice that he doesn't say, Jesus that is, that we will be known to be his disciples by how we handle the culture, or how we handle social issues around us, or by how we vote, or by the smile we give to the clerk at the grocery store. He says we will be known by our love for one another. So as we look at Peter here, In this particular passage, there's really one main point of this passage. And it sits kind of right here in the middle. He says in verse 22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Here's the point of this passage. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the point of this passage. The stuff before it, in, earlier in 22 that we just read, and the stuff after it, are simply served to support that point 
in this passage. To love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The main point is, for lack of a more creative phrase, love one another biblically. And we're going to define what we mean by that. We got all sorts of baggage when it comes to how we define love. Love one another biblically. Listen, one of the first marks of genuine growth and holiness, hear me clearly, one of the first marks of genuine growth and holiness in individuals and in churches is biblical love for brother, sister, Christians. If we were to put up a temperature gauge or to assess our our growth in holiness, it would be to look at our love for brother and sister Christians. Not love, listen, not love for your kids, not love for, for politically similar people, not love for people who see social issues the same way you do, not love for people of the same skin color, not love for Christians you never see or see off frequently, rarely frequently, not love for people who are easy to love, but love for all peoples who bear the name Jesus. And I would argue that practically that gets played out in the local covenant body of Christ. But nevertheless, love for peoples who bear the name Jesus regardless of of the aforementioned ideas and beyond. Those who bear the name Jesus. So let's talk, let's begin, and and begin with four descriptors of this love that Peter gives us. Four descriptors of this love. Because again, we, we come into this with with lots of baggage on what it looks like, lots of terrible definitions of what love is. Let's look at what Peter says love for one another should look like. First of all, it's sincere. Our love for one another should look sincere. What's this mean? It means more than cultural niceness or manners. More than just flattery. You ever seen that? Hi, how are you today? You know what I'm talking about? And you're like, do you even, do you really care? It's it's not an act. Sincere love is not an act. Like, I genuinely want to know, how are you? What that means is, if you tell me the truth, I'm going to pray with you right now. Or I'm going to pray for you tomorrow. And we're going to talk about it in a week. I'm going to follow up with you two weeks from now. We're going to have a conversation because I genuinely want to know, how are you today? It's sincere Sincere love is more than just coming to church together or sitting in the same pew. It's more than singing songs together. It's sacrificial. It puts others ahead of yourself. That theme right there is going to be carried through the rest of today. It's sacrificial. It puts others ahead of yourself. So so listen, if I could make a, a pretty blunt statement here in the very beginning... If you struggle to love another person, and let's go ahead and put it practically in this body, 
because that's where you're really going to work this out. It's not with, I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) If you struggle to love another person in this body, it's not because they are like this, or they're not like this, or they're like that. It's because you are unholy. Okay? Now, yes, they are unholy too. (laughs) But our calling is to love sincerely, and there's not a caveat here. It's not you're to love them unless they do X amount of things. Are you to love them until they step over this edge? Now, again, I just want to be careful. Because sincere love doesn't mean accepting their unholiness. It doesn't mean accepting their unrighteousness. It doesn't mean that we overlook sinfulness. That's not what he's talking about. We'll, we'll get to that later. But to love them... For who they are in Christ. This is, listen, this is knowing, this is, this sincere love is knowing the genuine love of God, and out of praise and thankfulness for the love of God, you want others to experience the love of God too. For if you have experienced and are experiencing, and trust you will experience tomorrow, the sincere love of God then you will want others to experience that same love too. And indeed, it's really from that love that you then love other people. If I I might say in a rather brash way, if you understand how unlovable you were and are, and in spite of that, how sincere God's love has been for you, then you will be able to go low enough to love even the most unlovable person among us. Sincere love. Brotherly love. Brotherly love. Our love for one another must be brotherly. What is brotherly love? It's familial love. Let me define this further. This is not a love that is condemning or one that looks down on another. Now listen, this is different than saying what you're doing is wrong. You can say, brother, sister, Christian, what you're doing is sin. And I mean, that's what Peter's doing. And Peter's going to do a lot more of it as we work through Peter. So if if judging someone's actions is sinful, is not brotherly love, then Peter is contradicting himself for the rest of this book. But condemning is this sense of, I'm holier than you. Let me, like Jesus, come rescue you by pointing out your flaws and lifting you up out of it. Like It's this condemning thing. Jesus doesn't do that. But we condemn when we act as though we reach down from the glorious holiness of heaven as though we belong there ourselves apart from Jesus to reach into someone's life in, life in their wretchedness to rescue them out. But instead, familial love is the idea of standing alongside, recognizing that we share identity. That, that bro- brotherly love is like the idea of, I have not arrived. 
I too am a person in process just like you. That I'm a person in need of life-giving love just like you. And I'm here to give it. That's brotherly love. Familial love. Ephesians does a great job of teaching us this. I remember preaching this sermon, my goodness, quite a few years ago now. But Ephesians does a great job of teaching us what we once were. Right? Ephesians 2. What we once were. That, that, that is the ground from which we all come. That is the, the, the cloth from which we were all cut. That is the breeding stock of which we all come from. Ephesians 2. That is us. And so when we approach each other, we recognize that we share that identity. Enemies of God, but now rescued by the same grace. It's a love that levels the playing field. Let me give you some signs, uh, some likely signs of anti-brotherly love. So the opposite or the antithesis to brotherly love. Uh, Signs that you are struggling with this, like impatience. Uh, That would be one. Impatience. You're impatient with that other person. Obviously condemnation. You're condemning them. You have closed ears. Like not willing to talk through it, not willing to converse through it. You're not, you're not willing to have conversations. Judging the fruit of that person while ignoring the log in your own eye, that would be a, another example. It's so prevalent in churches. It's prevalent in a broader culture right now, in the broader church culture. I'm thinking particularly in terms of dealing with current social issues. People forgetting that we are on a level playing field. And just because one of us might be right on a particular issue doesn't make us any better before Jesus. It doesn't give anyone the right to do anything but love with brotherly love. Even even as we think about doctrinal, doctrinal purity, now, there, there is a line which you cross doctrinal purity and now you're not a follower of Jesus, right? But even those who have different doctrine than us on lower level issues, we still are called to give them brotherly, sisterly love. That doesn't mean we can't call them to better doctrine. We can ter- certainly do that. If we love them, I think we will. We love them. If they bear the name of Jesus. Again, their doctrine at some point falls off the cliff where they no longer bear the name of Jesus. So I'm saying before they fall off the cliff, that category, you're called to love in this way. Listen, everyone in this room either is or will tomorrow realize they are facing the harsh realities of this life. And when life is tough, so tough that you can't see which way is up. I know I, Pastor Russ, Pastor Greg, and many people I'm sure share the same desire. Want to come alongside you and encourage you to cling to the hope of the gospel. 
come alongside you, to wrap our arms around you and to say, there is hope. There is hope because of Jesus. You know, when the darkness is so thick, I want to be used to give you eyes to see Christ. You know, some of the most precious moments I've had as a pastor is sitting across my desk from a hurting person, someone in the thick of darkness, and watch them begin to cry because for the first time, maybe in a while, they can see the face of their Savior. And once again, because of that, they have hope that God's grace is there for them and will continue to be there for them. Brotherly love. We are called to have brotherly love. Next, earnestly. We're to love earnestly. What is earnestly? Earnestly is a zealous, self-starting, self-motivated love. It's zealous. It, it means this. We'll put it in practical terms. It means you're looking for places to love. You're looking for opportunities. you got your eyes open, your ears open, and your heart open. You're looking. You're going searching for ways to love your brother, sister, Christians. What it means, you're putting effort, active effort into doing this. You know what that means? It means you're putting time and resources into doing this. I know some of you might say, but I'm so busy. Or you'll say, I'm so busy in this season of my life. Let me ask you a question, first of all. Have you, have you genuinely asked someone else to help you think about that? It could be that in your selfishness and pride that you've actually made much of life about you such that you are too busy to love others like you're called and expected to. Listen, indeed, I can tell you pastorally that there are many of you in this church that don't think you have the time to love other people earnestly. And it's true. You don't have the time because you spend it all on yourself. Loving earnestly. Loving earnestly. It's zealous, self-starting, self moving I want to go do it. I want to find places to do it. We're looking for ways to love the hurting, trying to figure out who is the hurting and to how we can love them. Well, you know, I, I, I'll just let them, I'll just, you know, they know I'm here. They know I'm here. They know I love them. They'll tell me what they need. Does that describe you? Uh, hopefully the, the zealous, self-motivated. I, I, obviously it's gospel-motivated, but it, it's, it's this, I'm, I'm going to go do this. Does that describe you? Are you scanning the situations and relationships in which God has placed you, looking earnestly for ways to love others? 
looking for ways to love others, me meaning what's going to care best for them in this moment, not what can I do for them that will make me feel best in this moment. What can I do for them in this moment that will make them feel most loved in this moment? Okay. Brotherly, earnestly, sincere, last, pure. Pure love. Love without mixed motives. Love without mixed motives. We love, I, I would even venture to say almost every time, with mixed motives. I, I, I don't know that we can get away from that ultimately until we see his face. <laughs> the question is, is to what extent are my motives wrong? We love so often for the wrong reasons. Let me give some examples. If you struggle with the idolatry of affirmation, you want people to affirm you, then chances are you will do things that look like love simply so that you can get affirmation back. So this looks like love, but I'm really just doing it so that they would glorify me. But it looks loving. And, and maybe to some measure, like if you have the work of the Spirit in you, then I'm sure to some measure there is good motives in that. But you have to recognize that there's also this motive over here, and we're called to crucify that, to, to get rid of that, to, to overcome that. I, I want to put, put this plainly. If that's what you're doing, then you're not, uh, at least you're not as best as you could and should be loving that person. At least in part, you're using that person. Which is just abuse. You're using someone else for your glory as if you deserve the glory. It's this abuse. You're using them, manipulating them. Or maybe if you struggle with influence, like you want power, you want things to go your way, you want people to do what you want them to do, then you do things, the chances are you do things that might look like love so that you can gain influence in that person's life. I get mixed motives. Or maybe you do what you do for that person so that you can get them in your debt. So that you can make them owe you. So let, me, so let me ask you the question. When you do something loving for someone else, how long do you relish that thing? I did this for them the other day. I hope they recognize that. I hope they see it. I hope they don't forget it. How often do you bring up, at the very least in your mind, maybe you don't say it verbally, but when you're expecting someone to do something that would be advantageous or beneficial for you, how often do past things you've done for that person come up in your mind? Whether you speak it or not, maybe you do. Maybe you say, well, I did this for you this day. Why won't you do this for me today? Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you do. But it's in your mind. That means that that thing that looked like love to that person you did, at least in part, and probably a major part, was for yourself, not out of love for that person. Pure. Our love is to be pure. Without that, it's to be an abandonment of self. I'm giving this to you for your good. 
How often do you think, well, I did this, you should be doing this? Or let me put it a different way. Talk about, again, but it's purity of love. How often do you regret doing something for someone else? Right? They respond in a certain way or a situation doesn't go so well and you're like, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have done that for them. Why do you wish you wouldn't have done that for them? That was the reason for which you did that for them. Now, if you, now I think the only way that that question becomes a, uh, or that statement becomes true is I wish I wouldn't have done that for them because that wasn't really loving. That's a good answer to that question and a good time to say that statement. But if I wish I wouldn't have done that for them because it put a cramp on my schedule, or I wish I wouldn't have done that for them because they didn't appreciate it, or I, wouldn't have, I wish I wouldn't have done that for them blank, that was the reason for which you did it, not the reason of love. Could it be that you love your schedule more? Could it be that you want something in return? Maybe... Maybe now your love for them has put you in an uncomfortable place. And so your motivation was to do it because it fits your comfort. Or maybe you love the relationship more than you actually love the other person. Like your motivation for what you say or don't say in a relationship is a motivation of keeping the relationship rather than what is most loving in the relationship. Listen, if, if it was interesting, uh, I don't have time. If you want to know what was interesting, come to me later. I'll tell you what was interesting. <laughs> like with a child, like with a child, are you unwilling to enforce God's standards on them simply because you want them to like you? That's not loving them. That's loving yourself. Pure love for us to one another is a love motivated by God's love for us and desiring to be a part of God's love for another person. To be a part of His love for another person. It's a love without mixed motives. You genuinely love that person for nothing in return You know, as, as we think through this, I, I hope you feel a measure of desperation. I mean, I hope that genuinely you're like, okay, Pastor Matt, like, I just really don't. You just put a load on top of me. I don't know if I can carry that. Let me add a little more. A further problem, a further problem is that we're called to love our enemies, and those outside the church. But listen, we, we can't claim to be loving them, our, our enemies and those outside the church, when we can't love those within. If you can't love those within, then loving those without is likely just an exercise in loving yourself. Here's why. Because there's a clear command of priority to love your brother and sister Christians. And if you are not fighting for that, then you are not walking in the Spirit and in faithfulness to God. 
And if you can't, that's a theological reasoning and a practical reasoning. If, if you can't get over loving yourself inside here, then there's no way you're getting over your loving yourself to those outside the bride of Christ. You say, well, these people are just hard to love. True. These people might be hard to love, but you ain't no cuddly bunny either. So if we're to do this, and we're going to flesh this out. We must get over ourselves. The problem is that we delight in ourselves. We love ourselves supremely. And what we must do is we, again, as we work through the rest of this this morning, we need to confess our need for the love of Jesus Christ. We need His love. We need His love made very apparent to us. And we need the eyes to see it. We must confess that we need Him to teach us how to love. We must confess that we need Him to help us get over ourselves and, and to delight in Him supremely. We need His sincere earnest, brotherly, and pure love to be made more clear to us. Oh, the issue is not in His expression of it. The issue is in the scales that cover our eyes and the hedges around our heart that hide the brilliance of His love for us. We need Jesus to give us eyes to see His love for us. Now, Peter aims to help us with this issue. Again, as we said, the phrase before this call to love and description of love, the phrase both before and after help paint and support this picture of what it looks like in this charge to love one another. Back to the beginning of 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And then the statement, right? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. If we're to love one another, we must purify our souls by obedience. Or let me put it a different way. Purify your soul by obedience until you feel sincere affections towards your brother, sister, Christian. Purify your soul by obedience until... You have sincere affections towards your brother, sister, Christian. That's what Peter's saying. That there is, a, there is an active working that you and I are to do that paves the way for this loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. And that is this purified your souls. Now at that point you're going, okay, well, is, is it talking about him purifying our souls? Or is this, not, what, what's he say? By your obedience. By your obedience. So by your obedience, you purify your soul, which makes the way for sincere brotherly love. If I put it in a negative tone, he's saying, you will have no room for love of your brother, sister, Christians until the stage of your heart has been wiped clean. Until there has been a purification. 
He is saying there is no room for another, for love for another, until your inward spirit is purified. All right, whoo! So we think about this, right? Because we believe in the gospel and we believe that, that God uh, purifies us through Jesus. And okay, okay, what, what is, whoa, what is he talking about here? I thought we left this all behind in the Old Testament, right? That was a joke. Inward spiritual purification. Inward spiritual purification. He's not thinking a final stage, but a process. Peter's not thinking this, our standing before God as pure because we're washed clean and covered by the blood of Jesus. That's not, that's not what he's not thinking justification here. He's thinking sanctification. He's thinking about the process of working out our salvation as Paul talks about it. And what he's saying is a lack of love for the body of Christ is a lack of holiness. It's a lack of purity in your soul. So your lack of love in the body of Christ for that person. Like, I get it. Oh, I, I corporately love them. Right. Now I want to think, is there a person that's really hard for you to love? Right. That's why I have your mind on that thought. It's not a personality issue. It's not a cultural issue. It's not a racial issue. It's not a political issue. It's not the fault of the church or the other people around you. It's a sin issue. It's an unholiness issue. And it's your sin issue and it's your unholiness issue. That's what Peter's saying. Our love, or to put it in a negative way, our lack of love is because our hearts, our soul rather, is not purified because we're not walking in obedience. So unholiness in our life leads to the struggle of love for another brother, sister, Christian. Now, again, sure, those people could certainly make loving them a little more easy. I get it. But let me ask you just a quick question. If, 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 if it's really easy to love someone else, how do you know you're not just loving an image of yourself? I think this is something we have to be really careful about. I think part, and I'm not saying you couldn't purely love them and be loving them with right, you know, and all, all that stuff. You could be, and it could be someone that looks just like you. But I think one of the, the tests is loving someone who's not, which is a, a theme. Again, I'm not just pulling this out of psychotherapy or some craziness like that. Like, this is a theme throughout the scriptures. That's part of the point of Ephesians. Like, the, these, this thread of, Love for one another. But what brings brilliance to the thread of you will be known to the world as my disciples by your love for one another? It's the fact that God could take people that are so unlike Him and people that in many ways are so unlike each other and bring them to be one people that would lay their lives down for each other just like Jesus laid his life down for us. So this whole, this inward purification, it's an active obedience. It's, I'm sorry, it's by active obedience that the inward man is purified. Here's the deal. Passivity in our spiritual, the, the inner man, as we've called it before here, as, as Paul talks about it in Ephesians. Passivity does not birth 
obedience and subsequent inward purification. Instead, actively pursuing not just the gospel message, but the whole of Christian teaching on doctrine and life, that's what leads to inward purification. So here's the question. What is it that primarily happens as the inner man is purified that would make room for loving other people? What is it that would happen in the inner man as it's purified that would make room for loving other people? Paul, Paul Tripp was really helpful in connecting a couple of these dots for me. Let me help you as well. So we talk about this purifying the soul. Let's talk about what happens as this soul is purified in the sanctifying sense. right? Not in a justifying sense, but in a sanctifying, purifying sense as he's talking about here. First step, we become aware of our sin. right? The convicting of the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures, through a brother, sister, Christian, Awareness of our sin. This is always the result of being visited by God's grace because sin blinds us, right? When we become aware of sin, it's always because of being visited by God's grace because we are not aware of our own sin. Then the awareness of the sin is followed by conviction. You can be aware of sin and not be convicted by it. You can even be willing to call it sin and not be convicted by it. Conviction is what makes us uncomfortable with our sin. Then that's second, conviction. So awareness, conviction, third, confession. Leaving behind the excuses and and then admitting that the way I have lived is wrong. Leaving behind the excuses, the self-justification, and admitting the way I lived is wrong. Four, Fourth step, repentance. A change of heart that leads to a change in direction in my life. I've turned from a me-centered way of living to living in a new way. What is the new way of living for a follower of Jesus Christ? Love God and love neighbor, right? Jesus summarizes the law in two commands. Love God, and love neighbor as what? As yourself. What's the third one? Be sure to take really good care of yourself and protect yourself. Love God, love neighbor. And just so you know, I I am thinking about self, make sure you love them as good as you love yourself. Love God, love neighbor. So here's what happened. So when I move away from that selfish way and give myself to the new way, I have now done what? Cleared the way for love for one another, the way God has called me to. Jesus came for many reasons, but He came so that you would not live for yourself, that you would live for Him. And He's defining what living for Him, at least in part, looks like. And that is living 
for others. And what Peter is saying is when the inner man is purified at a very fundamental base level, what's happening in this walk of awareness and conviction and confession and repentance is that I leave behind a life of living for self to live a life of loving God above all else and then loving neighbor as myself. And when the inner man is purified in that way, I now have the room in my heart to love other people. That's what Peter means. Purify your souls by obedience until you feel sincere affection towards your brother or sister Christians. Peter is reminding you and reminding me of the work of grace in our heart. It rescues you from you. It rescues me from me, from selfish living, from self... Let's put it in different terms to, to, to make it a little more offensive. It puts us... It saves us and rescues us from self-glorifying ways of living. That's selfishness. To live in a way that glorifies God because He deserves it. And His grace is at work in us to do it. So now, what else does... Again, what is... Peter says, saying, love one another. We do this by readying our hearts, by walking in obedience. I, I think you should take that very practical here. As, what does it look like to walk in obedience, right? This, listen, every sin that we're going to deal with is in your life, we, we, whether we're dealing with it in DNA or in house gatherings or after a sermon or in the midst of, a, or as we're going to do communion a little bit, as you're sitting there trying to work through a, a sin that you need to repent. At a very fundamental level, it's going to be a turning from Glory in yourself to glory in God. Pure as walking in obedience. And now Peter says we walk in holiness which readies the heart for love for the family of God. So here's the question. What makes this possible? What else does Peter want us to attach to this idea of walking in a way of obedience that purifies your soul, that results in love for one another? How, Peter? It's only by clinging to the living and abiding Word of God. We'll define this, but cling to the living and abiding Word of God. How? How is it I can just give of myself more? How is it I can lay my life down for tomorrow. I, I got to live tomorrow somehow. I got I to protect myself for tomorrow somehow. I got I, I to gotta secure my riches somehow for tomorrow. I, I got I, I to do, do something. What, what, is, what is he saying? He's saying cling to the living and abiding Word of God. What is he talking about? He's talking about the future grace of his living and abiding Word. That it's because of this grace that is guaranteed to us tomorrow that we can give of ourselves today and tomorrow. For it will be there. It will be there, and it's enough. Verse 24, or verse 23, rather. Since you have been born again, Right, let, me, let me go back since you connect these two. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart 
since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What's he thinking there? A seed that will endure, that goes forward, that is dependable tomorrow. And not of, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the what? The living and abiding, meaning the ongoing living word of God. And just in case you didn't understand the, the dependability of how, how sh- the assurance that this word will be true and firm and sufficient tomorrow, he says this, all flesh is like grass. What's he mean? All of you and all of me is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and the word, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Listen, we are all experiencing the harsh realities of this world, just in varying degrees and from varying different perspectives, trials, grief, and suffering all around us. And he tells us, Peter tells us that the walk of holiness in the midst of trials is to move our eyes off of ourselves and onto God. And this looks like loving other people. Listen, that means that in the midst of my sinfulness, your sinfulness, the sinfulness of others, in the midst of your suffering, my suffering, the suffering of others, in the midst of our testing, my testing, the testing of others, in the midst of social differences, political differences, cultural differences, it matters not the situation. The standard of holiness for God's people is to walk in love for one another that is sincere, earnest, pure, and brotherly. And how in the world will we ever get our eyes off ourselves and fixed on God? All we want to do is dwell on ourselves and reorient life towards us. And Peter says this, here's how. Because you have a new heart. Because you have a new heart. Because God, by His grace, has made you born again. He's given you eyes to see Him. You see, it's not just new birth, but new birth for a purpose. New birth for a a purpose. He's given you eyes to see Him. He has given a seed of truth inside of you. A seed that will delight in Him. A seed that is placed by the love of God for you and watered by the love of God for you. Peter wants us to see that this seed is good news. And good news, this, this seed that is planted in us through the Word of God is good news. What is good news? It's something to be joyful for. It's something to celebrate. It's something to be glad to have received. It's something that leads to joy because of the good news that has come. It's something that's meant to say, you know what? What you think is good news in delighting in yourself is indeed not good news at all. This is good news. Why? Because that delighting in yourself, it's going to fade. It's going to fail. It's going to drop and wither. But this over here, the good news of new life in Christ, the seed that He's planted in us, 
through his word, through the truth of the gospel, this is going to abide forever. Get your eyes off of this. Put your eyes on this. He says the good news comes from his word. This word, again, lives forever. Listen, man's wisdom on how to love each other, man's self-centered pursuits, our ideals of harmony and culture, man's body itself, all these things will fade, but his word will endure forever. And Peter is saying there is a seed of new birth told to you by the word that now lives inside you. Here's what Peter's saying. You want to know how we walk in holiness that leads to love for our brothers, sister Christians, for those hard-to-love people? So we delight in God for His good news. That He has placed within us a seed of holy life that will grow, a seed that is eternal. Not something that's fading, Listen, Peter points us to the Word of God because on its pages is something very pertinent. On its pages we see the sincere, earnest, brotherly, and pure love of none other than Christ for us. We see on pages like 1 John 4, 19, he says what? We love because He first loved us. And we see that because He first loved, Christ came to love us. God's love for His unlovable enemies shows His glory to the cosmos like nothing else can. His incarnation and death, listen, was more than flattery. It was His life laid down. His incarnation and His death was, more than, was not condemning, for He took the condemnation for us. For His children, He took their condemnation. He was not mere pass, merely passive. He came seeking, right? Seeking to save the lost. He came earnestly pursuing His people. Jesus came without mixed motives. He came to be used as a part of God's plan to rescue His beloved. God's beloved. His beloved. He came with pure motives. Out of a love for His Father above all else. And a love for His neighbor. And Peter says you can love one another if you'll believe the good news. Not just the day, but every day, every moment, believing the good news. That God loved us first and sent Jesus to show God's love to us by living the righteous life we could never live and taking the wrath that was due for our unrighteous living. Listen, that would purify your heart and fruit in the love brother, sister, Christians. Let me end with this by putting a couple things together for us. You have the seed of the gospel. The one who laid down his life out of glory and love for his Father because he loved us. 
that seed through His Word and Spirit has been placed in His people. And Peter says that it's imperishable. That it will abide forever. That it's sustainable. And that God sustains it by His power and His grace. That's why this will be abiding forever. And He's put that in us. Listen, your love is flaky. My love is flaky. But the love of Christ that now dwells in you and in me is not. It dwells consistently forever. So here's what he's saying. The grace of Christ's indwelling love is more precious, more important than your love for self. Adore Him. Treasure Him. And this grace, this grace of this love of God for His people that He implants in us with this imperishable seed, that that is sufficient for you and I to repent of selfishness and lay down our lives for the love of other people. And He's saying that this grace of my imperishable seed will be there today, will be there tomorrow, it'll be there next week, it'll be there in a million years. That's enough for you. You can love me supremely and you can lay down your life in such a way to love each other. You see, when we love each other the way he's calling us to, what are we saying to the world? That God's grace is sufficient. That he's rescued me. That he's enough. That he's the glorious one and I'm not. Let's pray. Father, we must confess that we have a hard time loving each other. We have a hard time loving each other in a way that is earnest and pure, brotherly, sincere. What we trick ourselves into believing is that when we live selfishly, we're actually caring for ourselves. But the reality is, is that that's quite disastrous for us. And it does not honor you, most importantly. So Father, I pray that you'd help our eyes to see that we can abandon self, in a sense, because we... Trust that your grace is sufficient tomorrow. That this seed inside of us that is growing because of your love and because of your discipline and because of your purifying work and because of your word and because of the body and because of the preaching of the word and the singing of songs and the work of the Spirit to convict us and to make us aware and to lead us to repentance. 
that the seed is growing because of all of the grace that you've supplied us with. And that seed will continue to grow by all such grace tomorrow. Help us to be satisfied that that's enough. And that through that now our hearts may have room to love each other in a way that tells the world that we are your disciples. In such a way that points to the reality that only a glorious God could make something like this happen. Father, thank you for your son Jesus, and thank you for your grace tomorrow. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, partake in the Lord's Supper today uh, to give you some instructions. On the logistical side, we just stay in your seats and pray, and just as you're ready, come forward, take a little piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and uh, make your way back to your seat, and Greg will invite us to stand at some point. And, uh, but more important than logistics is, you know, Peter's reminder, sorry, Paul's reminder to us in Corinthians that, uh, that only those walking in repentance and faith are to partake of the Lord's Supper. So he says that if we were not walking in repentance, if there's something that we're sin that we are knowingly holding on to, that we are drink judgment onto ourselves. Um, so I'd encourage you, though, two things. One, if, if, it's, you're not, if you're unwilling that you just stay in your seat and observe. Um, but I would encourage you, more importantly, that if there is something, confess it. Don't wait. Let, let the broken body and the spilt blood of Christ spur your heart to repentance. To, to lead your heart to repentance. To show you that whatever it is you're holding on to is not worth that. I'd also encourage you, if you're not a member of Renovation Church, but you are a follower of Jesus Christ, walking in repentance and faith, you're, you're welcome to partake with us. Uh, we don't practice close communion um, in that sense. Um, so I want to welcome you to the Lord's table. Let me pray for that. Father, may your grace abound to us through remembering the broken body, the blood that was spilled for us. Father, may we see in the blood this morning that you have loved us sincerely and earnestly and in a way that was not condemning, but took our condemnation for us. For Jesus, who was, in one sense, not like us. He did not have the sin for the sin that we had, but still came and wrapped his arms around us and said, Brothers, sisters, I am here to save you. And then on the cross, he became like us, 
for you took our sin and placed it on him. And for a moment in time, his identity became as one who bore the sins, but not his own sins, our sins. Our sins. Our condemnation. Our guilt. And our shame. For he knew the love of the Father. And he came to die so that we might live eternally knowing the love of the Father. So may we be moved towards holiness by the good news of your Son, Jesus, and your grace that will supply tomorrow. For it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.